According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. You can turn to John chapter 7 as we get started this morning. John chapter 7. I was just browsing the website to see how we were doing. This is our fifth session in this episode. We wrapped up the Galilean ministry. We put the notebook out there in the hallway. You've got all the notes there on the Galilean ministry. Appreciate the folks that got those copied and printed and and set up back there. And since moving on now to what's titled the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus, this is going to take us all the way from now up till the Passion Week. This is going to end with the with Palm Monday, with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and, and that will be section number six in our Harmony of the Gospels, and that will t- cover the, the Passion Week itself. And there are probably as many events in the Passion Week as there are in the current section, which is... As I said, number five, the last Judean and Prean ministry. So this morning is lesson 202, and I think if we jump on it quickly enough, we can cover some good ground today. And between this week and next week, I think we can uh, wrap up the Feast of Tabernacles. That'll make a total of six sessions on, on that. Here lately, we have covered some of the larger episodes. If you look back to the Galilean ministry, and and you should do this occasionally on the website, remind yourself of material that's been available, and it may be just by casually reading through there, it'll jog a memory, and you'll say, oh yeah, I forgot about that. that. That would really be applicable for something I'm going through right now. But six sessions, for example, the Sermon on the Mount is a, as another chapter that we took six sessions to deal with there. Um, Five sessions uh, where we taught woes upon the privileged. And uh, if you were not here for that section, 112, 113, 114, 115, 116. Is this too small? Can you see that okay? Um, those were some... Uh, oh, that's probably too big. Woes upon the privileged, 112 through 116, were an outstanding series that you want to review for a lot of reasons, not just Life of Christ reasons. But that was where he said, Woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin, for if the miracles had been done in you, had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And that doctrine really helps us. We're finite creatures. We have a hard time trying to understand all the what-ifs of Scripture. You know, what if a different choice would have been made? How would your life have turned out? What if... Another person had made a different choice. What then would have been the result? We can't handle those. We're finite creatures. But God has a grasp on every single what if in the universe. And even down the road, 3,000 years later, he knows about a what if 3,000 years ago. So that, uh, that realm of teaching is, uh, is well worth reviewing. Uh, we had other sections that went fairly lengthy. In fact, Peter's Great Confession went... Uh, for seven sessions. That's the one, of course, the Catholics try to uh, turn into the authorization for Peter becoming the first pope. And then disciples contending about greatness. All that material there, that was another seven sessions as uh, from 182 to 191. So several of these here recently have been kind of lengthy. And I don't regret taking this amount of time here on the Feast of Tabernacles because there is so much doctrine to be found here in Chapter 7. So let's get to the outline. Feast of Tabernacles, John chapter 7. And we are ready, I think we've down through point 7. And in that we went through, uh, actually we got through point 8, did we not? We got through point 8. And there's some sub-points under point 8 that we want to, uh, we want to deal with. So, just a couple of verses to fix our bearings here. Have we prayed already? We did not. Goodness. Well, let's pray. <laughs> morning, Heavenly Father. We thank you for this day. We thank you. We had a, an early morning prayer meeting at 6 a.m. and we rejoice over that. They are abundant blessings. And the ladies have had another prayer meeting since then. And now uh, we're eager to feed upon your word. And we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. Father, set aside distractions. Give us concentration. Uh, Father, open our eyes to the truth of, of uh, Scripture that we might make application for the glory of our Savior and for your good pleasure. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. 
I uh, can't go back and review everything we've covered, but uh, this is the setting is the Feast of Tabernacles we looked at under point one. We're trying to differentiate between different groups in this chapter, and one of the main antagonists are the Jews, quote-unquote, the Jews. It's a little bit awkward for us to read about the Jews because we're, uh, we're kind of trapped by our society and our culture, and we look at this and we say, well, they all were Jews, right? <laughs> you know, we're Americans, they were Jews. Uh, yes, Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were Jews. The Pharisees were Jews. The Sadducees were Jews. Um, everybody primarily were Jewish in uh, in this episode. The title, however, references the Jewish leaders. And so as they're particularly when Christ encounters them in Jerusalem around the temple and uh, around the feasts and festivals, these are the men that are in charge. The Jewish religious leaders. And so... <coughs> I gave you this definition for Hoi Yudayoi. In this context, Mosaic law observant religious Jews, that is the theocratic rulers in Jerusalem. The theocratic rulers in Jerusalem. These are the religious leaders of the different parties, primarily Pharisees and Sadducees were the dominant ones. But the religious leaders, those that had control over other people's lives by virtue of their control over the religion. We separate the Jews from the crowds, and uh, that's important to, to know. Most of the crowds were rather ignorant of some of the politics and some of the murder schemes and things that were going on. That We will also see in this chapter the residents of Jerusalem, and they are aware of what's going on. We even read about it down in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? So this group knew about it. They knew that, that uh, the Jews were seeking his death. The crowds, however, were not. In fact, they cried out, you have a demon, you're out of your mind, who's trying to kill you? They are oblivious to the murder plot against the Lord. All right, under point three, we talked about the uh, temple, and we gave you some maps and diagrams on the temple. At some point midweek, Jesus taught a public Bible class in the temple. This was a week-long feast. Actually, it was eight days long, a week plus a day. And we'll see that uh, in today's study. And he, when he first went up, he went up low-key. He was quiet. He was under the radar. He was not trying to make a big splash. But then finally, at the midpoint of the, te- of the feast, he could no longer restrain himself. And he got up and began teaching and gave some pretty powerful messages here. We'll skip through some of the subpoints there. <clears throat> Jesus explained why his credentials were incomparable. They were stunned. They said, how has this man learned, having never been educated? Who is this uneducated, illiterate moron? Well, he's the savior of the universe and the, the creator of the universe. And don't be so proud of your own education. Point five, the crowds were shocked by his statement. They didn't know who uh, was seeking to kill him. They didn't realize that the plots were as advanced as they were. Point six, Jesus rebukes the Jews for their failure to respond to his previous rebuke. Now, this was vital. And if you missed it, I would really encourage you to try to tie together chapter five with chapter seven. Because he says, I made one man well, and or I did one deed, and you all marvel. And he goes back to the last time he was in town, which was chapter 5. And that was the man that was by the pool of Bethesda, and he, and he healed him and said, take up your pallet and go home. And so everything that they should have learned back in chapter 5, they didn't learn. And now he has to rebuke them again, not only for where, where they are now, but for rejecting the truth back in chapter 5. If they would have learned it a year and a half ago, he wouldn't be rebuking them now. So chapter 5 comes into play. So many of these, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, all lead into the content of what we're seeing here today. Some subpoints on this. We'll go past point 7. Jesus' faithfulness to minister in the face of conflict resulted in a faith harvest. And I can't stress this enough. We've got some conflict going on around here, and that's expected. That's normal. We're uh, looking to build a new property. We're looking to expand the training ministry. We're going to have an ordination service by the end of this year or next. At some point, uh, the adversary does not want these things to take place. And so the heat gets cranked up and and, uh, little things get blown out of proportion and they become big things. And then next thing you know, we have a schism. Next thing you know, there's people arguing over stupid things, things they wouldn't have argued over five years ago. But they'll argue over it this year because the conflict is increased. And that's, that's the nature of it. Well, the conflict is not going to keep Jesus from preaching. And he continues to preach and he actually uh, observes a faith harvest. There are many that are going to come 
to uh, salvation as a result of this. We read in verse 31, many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than these, than those which this man has, will he? They can't imagine another man arriving with more miracles than what they're seeing before their very eyes. And so they allow the evidence to be obvious, to say, look, it's just too obvious. This man has to be the Christ. It's inconceivable that someone's going to come and do more than this. Remember, the miracles themselves weren't the issue, but they should have testified to his authenticity. All right. As we were tying this together, we did observe from verses 28 and 29 that his teaching ministry in the temple continued with clear statements of his origin and purpose. And I'm not going to delve into that today, but it's going to relate directly to what comes next. And so I wanted to remind you of this. Uh, origin and purpose, when he says in verses 28 and 29, you know me and you know where I am from. That's origin. We all ought to be able to give an account to any who might ask. If somebody says, who is this Jesus guy anyway? If you let them depart from your presence with some goofy idea that, oh, well, he was just a man, he was a moral teacher, he was a good example, don't let them do that. Don't let him walk away from you with that impression. Say, he was God in the flesh. He was God the Son from all eternity past. Became flesh, was born of a virgin in the manger. But he existed from all eternity past with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is God in the flesh. There is no one like him. So he has a statement of origin and purpose. He, um, that the Father is the one who sent him and he's here to do what the Father has for him to do. All right. Although attempts were made to arrest him, he uh, observed his faith response there in verse 31. All right, which gets us to point eight. The religious leaders' fear overpowered their other fear. This is new ground. I'm going to give you some subpoints on this, and we'll discuss what happens when your leaders are the ones that are afraid. Uh, what kind of carnal fear is driving them? The religious leaders' fear overpowered their other fear. Verses 32 through 36. Let's read through it and then we'll come back and get some points. Um, you know, if you have fear, and we all do, but we should let the Father deal with it. The perfect love that casts out all fear. We should let the Word of God transform our thinking. We should, we should not respond with worldly methods to try to find cosmic solutions to these circumstances. So in John 7:32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Remember, they couldn't speak out boldly because they were terrified of the, of the Jewish leaders. Nevertheless, no matter how they tried to keep it hush-hush, the Pharisees got word of it. So the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. See, their fear had been overcome. Before, they wanted him under arrest, but they were afraid to do it publicly. They were afraid that people in the crowds wouldn't respond very well if they were that blatant about it, if they were that open about it. You know, it's much better to go ahead and just abduct him under cover of darkness or something. You know, don't let the crowd see it. Not in broad daylight. Not in front of everybody. Well, at this point, though, they don't have, another, they don't have a choice. Because, yes, they are fearful of, of, a, of a backlash. They're fearful of the crowd reaction. They're fearful of public opinion. But there is another fear that's more powerful than that. And that's the fear that if they don't do something to stop him... Too many people are going to obey him <laughs> and become believers and start listening to his message. And that cannot be allowed. That has to be stopped. So they sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. So he changes the message. He builds on the message, not changes in a different message, but it's building on the message. He started off by saying where he was from and why he's here. And now he continues to say, and now here's where I'm going. All right. So it's a progression. It's not a change, but a progression. And then, of course, they don't understand any of this. For a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. They're unbelievers. How are they going to get to glory? But you kind of get a clue here as to how clueless they are. In verse 35, the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? You see how clueless they are? 
Where is he going to go? Where is he going to go? What's he going to do? Remember, in their universe, they are the universe. In their world, everything revolves around Jerusalem, so everything revolves around them. And if there are Jews that live in the diaspora, if they live in the dispersion, shame on them. They're cursed. They live among Greeks. They live among Gentiles. They might as well be Gentiles. That if you're not in Jerusalem, you're a nobody. We've seen this repeatedly as they mocked the Galileans versus the Judeans and so forth. So where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? How dare he say we can't go there? Tell me what I can't do. Tell me where I can't go. Who do you think you are? I'll show you. See, pride and arrogance can't handle a message like that. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? They'll track him down to the ends of the earth. Remember, the one thing you can't say about Pharisees is that they were, you can't claim that they were not um, diligent. They were very fastidious. And that was one of the rebukes the Lord said. You know, they cross land and sea to make one disciple, make one proselyte, to take a Gentile and convince him he, could, he should try to be Jewish. All right? And then they said, but at the end of the day, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. They were fastidious. They were diligent. They would go the extra mile. And so when he makes a claim like, hey, where I'm going, you can't go. That's almost fighting words. That's almost like, what do you mean? We can outdo you. Just tell a legalist that they can't do as much. Are you kidding? They, they thrive on that. I can do as much. Anything you can do, I can do better. Watch me. Because their whole system of spirituality is predicated upon outdoing the next guy. It's a sad way to live. So, some points to study under this. Uh, did we read through? We didn't get through verse 36. They're just more of their bamboozle. Where's he going to go? Is he going to go teach the Greeks? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. They don't understand what he's trying to teach them here. So, sub-point A. I just want you to see the context for this. While under the threat of arrest... While under the threat of arrest, they are seeking to lay hands on him. So what's he going to do? Back down, run away, change his message, soften his tone? Nothing of the sort. He's going to progress into deeper realms of his own teaching. While under the threat of arrest, Jesus continued with clear statements of his finished work and departure. Clear statements of his finished work and departure. Now, it's not finished from the standpoint of when he spoke these words, but it's, in his mind, about to be finished, and so his departure is at hand. Got a little wordy on that. I'll give you a moment to write it down. Again, point A. While under the threat of arrest, Jesus continued with clear statements of his finished work and departure. John 7, verses 32 through 34. They have sent officers to arrest him. And so he doesn't uh, run. He doesn't hide. He doesn't leave town. He doesn't stop what he's doing. He stays teaching. And he moves on to the next lesson. He taught them origin and purpose. Now he's moving on to finished work and departure. It's the next progression in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the overall lesson here. You've got to recognize how powerful is that? This world is so full of phonies. And this world expects you to be a phony because that's what they are. And, and they expect that, you know, with enough influence and persuasion and convincing, you'll, you'll change your tune. But that's how the world works. You know, you look out for number one. You save your own neck. You do what you have to do. But when a believer stays faithful and doesn't change his tune, but continues to be obedient to God the Father, that stands out. And that's what we're seeing here. It'll happen with the apostles in the book of Acts. They keep threatening them. Stop preaching this Jesus. And Acts chapter 5, they say, well, we've got a choice. We can obey God or we can obey you. All right. And I think this whole episode here where their fear is overpowering another fear, we can use that ourselves. Because we should have a fear that overrules any other fear. That's the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. And that should be the fear that overpowers any other fear that might be out there. The carnal kind of fear, certainly. Whatever you're afraid of. Are you afraid of rejection? Afraid of abandonment? Afraid of whatever you're afraid of. Loss? Whatever it is. 
Perfect love can cast that out. And the fear of the Lord is the antidote to any of that. So this was his faithfulness. Point B, the earthly-minded Jews had no frame of reference to understand his message. Earthly-minded Jews had no frame of reference to understand his message. And boy, do we encounter that today. Earthly-minded Jews had no frame of reference to understand his message. You know, just even a, even a generation ago, there was at least a cultural awareness of basic Christianity. There was at least some kind of... You, you could mention the Ten Commandments and people, even if they didn't believe it, would at least know what you were talking about. You could talk about Moses or the flood and they had stories, Bible stories from their childhood or whatever. They at least knew what you were talking about. That's not true anymore. We're in post-Christian America. You could bring up something and you assume everybody knows about that. And they're like, what are you talking about? There is no cultural awareness of, uh, of these things. No frame of reference to understand any of these things. Again, he's speaking to them clearly. Where's he about to go? He's telling them, I'm leaving. Where's he going to go? Heaven. Yeah. He's going to die on the cross, be resurrected, and go to heaven. And so how are they going to get there? Now, these guys can't. That's right. Now, the ones who believe can and will, and, and, and absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and so forth. But the ones that don't believe will never get there. But see, they don't have that frame of reference to be thinking in spiritual terms or thinking about eternal life. or thinking, To them, Christ is a political figure. Christ is simply the promised one that's going to come and destroy Rome and elevate Jerusalem to the capital of the world and we get to stomp on the Gentiles and that's going to be lots of fun. We get to be the tyrant. See, tyrants are not any good unless you're the tyrant. Right? And then, hey, do whatever you want to do. You're the tyrant. <coughs> and so this carnal-mindedness, worldly-mindedness, or as the point on the screen says, earthly-minded. They're looking for a Christ, but all they really want is a political leader, a king that will remove the bonds of Rome. And that crowd on the mountain said, man, not only is he, does he do miracles, he can give us food. What a great king is that? See, if a man showed up today and could just multiply loaves and fishes and feed everybody, they'd probably win in a landslide. You know, say, hey, look at me. I'll go, you know, chicken in every pot. <laughs> all right. Earthly-minded Jews have no frame of reference, and we encounter this all the time. And we're, we're talking anymore. One of the biggest obstacles we have in giving the gospel is we're, we're trying to give them a message about the forgiveness of sin. They've got, they don't even know what a sin is. In their mind, there is no sin. What do you mean sin? I don't need to be forgiven of sin. I don't sin. And if you say I sin, then you're judgmental. You're condemning. Who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? Our culture has no framework for sin. Conscience has been seared. I was on an airplane with a lady one time. She said, oh, I don't sin. <laughs> really? Well, you just told me a lie, so there's a sin right there. How about that? <laughs> the people get in their minds that they're good people. They're moral. They're nice. They do good things. They pay their taxes. They obey the laws. Or at least most of them, the ones they agree with. They, uh, they, they're very... Uh, liberal in their mindset that they live and let live and you can do what you want to do and they won't bug you about it and they want to do what they want to do and don't you dare bug them about it and that's just kind of their definition of being a good person and so when you approach them to say that jesus christ died on the cross for their sins that's that's just isn't going to compute because what sins i'm okay i don't need to be saved what do they need to be saved from they're fine as far as they're concerned so this is where, uh, where they are. All right, now, let's get to the last day of the feast on verses 37 through 44 under point 9. The last day of the feast. Remember, it was an eight-day feast. It was a week plus a day. The last day of the feast was occasion for the free offer of living water. <clears throat> See, he's not about to stop now. Because he's told them origin and purpose. He's told them finished work and destination. Now he has to, they've got the information. Now he has to lay it before them for their response. I think um, this might be a weakness in some evangelism approaches. 
where maybe we communicate information, but we don't stop and say, all right, now, here it is. You've had the, the content. You've had the knowledge. You have the information. You now have to do something with it. You either trust in it, believe in it, accept it, or reject it. But right now, which way are you going to go? See? And I understand there's philosophies of evangelism that don't want to do that. They don't want to pressure because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to provoke a false profession of faith. They don't want somebody to feel guilty about not walking an aisle or not saying whatever. And so they they don't want to pressure somebody so they don't offer anybody. And, And I think that's overboard. It's not what Jesus is doing here. And it's not pressure to say, okay, here it is. You got the information. What are you going to do? That's the approach the Lord makes here in verses 37 through 44. Now, again, I think there's ways to do it, ways not to do it. And obviously, you can, you can really intimidate people if it's a revival tent or a church setting and their friends are getting up and walking down the aisle. They, they're made to sit there and act like they're, they're weird for not walking an aisle and so forth. You ever read Billy Graham's biography and how he got saved? And, and actually, several nights went by. This revival was over several nights. And and he kept resisting. Kept, he wasn't going to go. He wasn't going to go. He was too embarrassed to walk down that aisle. And then finally, on the very last night of the whole thing, he figured that, well, you know, embarrassment was the one thing, but going to hell for all eternity was, was a lot worse. <laughs> and he, he couldn't resist anymore. He said, I need to find out about this salvation stuff. All right. Verse 37. Now, on the last day, notice, the great day of the feast... Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I love the way it's expressed as an if. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Some people will be, some people won't be. I like the expression anyone. Because who does that leave out? Nobody. Who does that include? Anyone or everybody, right? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And drink. Come to me as an imperative and come to me as an active verb. The thirsty one must be the one who accomplishes the activity of the verb. Now that's a metaphor. The metaphor is defined for us in verse 38 as he who believes. So coming to me is an equivalent statement to believing in me. You have the metaphor, you have the reality. Metaphor verse 37. Thirsty one comes and drinks. The reality is believing in the revelation and the promises, the person of Jesus Christ. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right. The last day of the feast. Sub point A. Subpoint A, the last day of the feast moved the emphasis from the seventh to the eighth day. Most of the Old Testament was grounded in day seven, the seventh day. It was the Sabbath day. It was the day they were to keep holy. But on this feast, we had the feature of the eighth day. So hold your finger here in John 7. Let's look back to Leviticus 23. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. 2336. <coughs> that would be Levi Tychus. Levi Tychus. I worked the guy that called it that. <coughs> I didn't correct him or anything. I was excited that he was a young believer and reading his Bible for the first time ever. So I'm not going to discourage him or tell him he's pronouncing it wrong. Go ahead. Keep reading. <laughs> And boy, if you can read Leviticus without giving up on it, that's, that's encouraging. It tells me you're positive of truth or something. <clears throat> All right, so Levi Tychus, 2336. <coughs> Excuse me, this is something else. All right, backing up then to verse 33. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of this seventh month, is the Feast of Booths. 
for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. Now notice, on the eighth day. So it's a seven-day feast with a follow-up. With an eighth day that brings it all together. In fact, the eighth day, what did it call in John 7? The great day of the feast. It was a follow-up day for all the seven that preceded it to, uh, to celebrate these truths. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. This was a sacred time. This was the holy assembly, the holy convocation. This was a body of redeemed people, the Lord's people, His possession on earth, that were gathered together for His good pleasure. That's what makes it significant when God's people are gathered together for His good pleasure. So the last day of the feast moved the emphasis from day seven to the eighth day. Now I would put forth that in the Old Testament they did not completely understand why they were changing a stress from day seven to day eight. They just did it. They did it every year. They obeyed every year. They have seven days of the feast and then let's have one more convocation on the eighth day. We now in the church understand some things. We understand why day seven has given way to day eight. We understand that day eight is Resurrection Sunday. Day eight is the first day now of the week. Eight is the number of new things. It's the number of resurrection. How many souls came through on the ark? Survived the flood? Eight souls. There you go. The number eight speaks of new life, resurrection, new things. The day after wrath. All right. Jesus Christ was not resurrected on the seventh day. He appeared on the eighth day. The tomb was empty on Sunday. And that's ever since then, from the time of the New Testament onward, the uh, predominant Christian tradition has been making the eighth day, that is the first day of each week, the Lord's Day and the day of observance. In the early centuries, they were able to then double up and they would able to, uh, they had no problem going to the temple on day seven and having witnessing evangelistic and apologetic opportunities to the Jewish people. And then say, hey, by the way, tomorrow, why don't you come to our assembly? Kind of approach. All right. So the, the last day of the feast moved the emphasis from day seven to the eighth day. And that is important. Remember, the, the, the plan of God is progressive. The plan of God is taking what was taught previously and adding to it now new information that completes and fulfills and makes more clear. Point B. This metaphor of drinking... It's not the first time he's used it. He's used it in chapter 4, chapter 6, and now here we see it again in chapter 7. Jesus frequently employed the metaphor of drinking for the reality of believing. Frequently employed the metaphor of drinking for the reality of believing. I love the nature of drinking. Um, careful. I love... Yeah, I'm on tape. I'm on, people all around the world just heard Pastor Bob say he loves drinking. The metaphor of drinking, the activity of drinking, it's it's universally recognized. Even modern English idiom, we've got a figure of speech that uses drinking, right? About a horse, you can lead a horse to water, but what? Yeah. It's 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 interesting. You can drinking is I'm going green again. Drinking is a volitional activity. Uh, if it's involuntary, it's called drowning. <laughs> you, you can uh, pour water down somebody's mouth and, you know, they, they can have an instinctive reaction based on fear that doesn't want to drown and force them to maybe choke and sputter and swallow or whatever. Uh, but is that fair to say you're making them drink? No, you're just forcing water down and then they're trying to stay alive. No, drinking is a volitional activity. Drinking is entirely volitional every single time. And to be used here in this capacity for coming to Christ, I find that to be significant. There are large schools of theology, by the way, that deny all this, that tell you that uh, there is no active role of the human being in the process of coming to Christ. They don't even like the phrase coming to Christ. 
They don't like the phrase finding Christ. They say, no, no, I didn't find Christ. Christ found me. And no, I didn't come to Christ. Um, the Father brought me to Christ. The Father gave me to Christ. I didn't come. All right. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's reactionary. And, it's, and I understand it because I grew up the, kind of this way and I grew up with a lot of folks this way. Um, they, they really, really want to defend sovereignty to the point that there's no human participation even though the scripture says come. All right. So, you know, folks might want to rewrite this maybe to suit their comfort level to say, uh, since uh, there is none who seeks after God, no, not one, then don't bother coming. Uh, the <laughs> kind of, But that changes the language here. All right. It changes the language here. If some will, some won't. Anyone. So don't try to restrict who can do this. If anyone is thirsty, there are folks that deny that anyone could be, let him come to me. Let him come to me. And if you're going to draw a line in the sand and say, no, no one comes, then uh, Jesus is either very confused here in this text or he's lying or he's being cruel. How cruel is it to tell somebody, hey, come here, come here, right? Um, if the person can't come. You know, going, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. And the kitty has no legs. It's just laying there and it can't come. But it squirms and it meows and it's all pathetic. But it's got no legs so it can't come. But it's trying to come because you're inviting it to come. How cruel would that be? To, to, to issue an invitation that has no means of being accepted is not an invitation. It's a joke. It's a cruel joke. And that's not the nature of our Father. When He says, if you want to... If you're thirsty, come. It's freely available. won't cost you anything because the price has been paid by a substitute. Let him come to me and drink. Coming is an active verb. Drinking is an active verb. I'm just speaking linguistically here. An active verb, the subject accomplishes the activity of the verb. He who believes in me. That's an active verb. The human being has to do it. All right. Now, for balance sake, yes. All flesh is corrupt. Human is, humanity is deprived. Uh, there, when it says there is no one who seeks after righteousness, no, not one, that is a true statement. No one without God drawing them. No one without the Holy Spirit convicting them. No one without God's uh, common grace making it possible is going to come. But God has common grace. He extends common grace. He empowers. He guides. He directs. He convicts. He draws. And whosoever will may come. So that's what we see here. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You go from being in need of water to now being a source of water. To being a source of water. You know how much better it is to be a source of something? All this talk about how we need Saudi Arabia's oil, Right? And that's kind of a myth anyway. Most of our oil comes from where? Canada and Mexico. Yeah. Venezuela, a whole bunch of it. But anyway, we don't, do we need Saudi Arabia's oil? Do we need Canada's oil? Do we need Mexico's oil? Do we need Venezuela's oil? Do we have oil? We have oil. We're not allowed to produce any of it, but we have it. All right. So you go from needing water to now being a source of water. That not only meets your needs, but then is available to extend to others. Now, hold your finger here and let's go back to chapter four. And, and I want you to see this because this every single time he uses this, it is in an evangelistic way. It is an offer without cost to a uh, soul without life. John four. This is the woman at the well. And she can't figure out how a Jewish man is speaking to a Samaritan woman. He's breaking racial taboos. He's breaking gender taboos. He's just breaking all the rules. And uh, Jesus answered in verse 10 and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and you don't, it's a second class condition, if and you don't, but since you don't know the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, but if you would have, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water and a little bit further down 
See, she's just as clueless as the Jews saying, what's he going to go to the Greeks? <laughs> she's earthly minded. Where are you going to get this water? You don't have anything to draw with. It's a deep well. You don't even bring a bucket. You don't have a rope. You don't have a bucket. You have no... What do you have? Uh, eternal life. <laughs> and so uh, he points out in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Well, that makes sense. How long does a drink last until you get thirsty again? How long does a meal last until you get hungry again? But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. For the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So again, you have your own provision, your own source. Not just water that's consumed and satisfies, but water that is produced and, uh, and effective. And uh, at this point, she's not uh, ready to swallow what he's dishing up there. She's a bit mocking and teasing when she says, Wow, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsting or come all the way here to draw. Yeah, put a well inside me. I don't have to walk all the way outside of town here to go to this well. Wouldn't that be great? And then uh, he exposes her fornication and, and she recognizes she's not just talking to some clown at the well. This man's a prophet and uh, she ends up getting saved here in this chapter. Okay, over to chapter 6 then where he feeds the 5,000 and they miss the point on that when he says, you know, quit working for the earthly food. John chapter 6 in verse... Uh, he feeds the 5,000, then he walks across the water, and, and the crowds over there are kind of stumped because they know he didn't get in the boat, but they're not sure where he went. And then finally they walk around the lake, and they find him on the other side, and they're all confused. How did you get here? And then in verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You have no interest in the miracles. You don't care that there's a prophet of Jehovah standing right here with, it, with content to teach. You just had a good meal yesterday and you want me to do it again. And then he says, stop working for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you for in him, the Father God has set his seal. Now, this chapter is going to include the metaphor of drinking, but also adding to that the metaphor of eating, eating bread and drinking. And so when you get down to verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. Notice, comes to me. A human activity must take place. He who believes in me. Coming is equivalent to believing. He who believes in me will never thirst. So you understand that coming is a metaphor. Coming is being used not literally. You don't walk from one place to another place, but you come to Jesus because you are changing. You're being changed from a position lost in this world to the position of being redeemed in his son. And you do so as you believe. So there is the parallel again. Coming and believing. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So there's the satisfaction of the thirst. All right. Uh, also in this chapter, before I move on, I want you to glance down and, and note. Verse 44. No one can come to me. And that's where a lot of folks would stop and say, no one can come to me. I don't come to Christ. Christ came to me. Christ saved me. Right? And they're stressing the sovereignty to the maximum and minimizing volition to the maximum to where there is no volition. It's all sovereignty at work. But the verse doesn't end in verse 44 with no one can come to me. It says no one can come to me unless. So now if you have an unless... Now there's qualifications there so that if those conditions are met, the activity can take place. No one can come to me unless whatever follows, those are the conditions. You can reword that to say, if anyone can come to me, if they fulfill those conditions. Okay? It's the, the exact corollary to no one can come to me unless... You can reword that legitimately as saying anyone can come to me if. You see how that works? It works in English. It works in Greek. It works in any language you want. It's the nature of language. All right. So no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. 
um, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there is a drawing ministry that takes place. There is a drawing ministry that takes place. Now, that needs to be examined. That needs to be studied. We need to understand uh, how does the Father draw? How does the Son draw? Because the Son also draws in addition to the Father drawing. How, uh, how is that drawing made effective and some certain things there? It's all worth studying. But you've got to understand that there's a sovereignty side of things and a volition side of things, and they both are true. Do not, do not, do not allow yourself to fall into an either-or camp. The moment you, you insist on an either-or, either God's sovereign or men have free will, if you trap yourself to say that's an either-or, you lost before the debate even started. So don't accept that either God has sovereignty or man has free will. Don't accept that, because they're both true. God is sovereign, absolute, eternal, unconditional sovereignty, and man has free will. That's the way he created us, that's the way he designed us. That's what gives the love of Jesus Christ value. It's not an either or, it's a both and. All right? And if you recognize that, you uh, cannot fall into the two uh, outcomes. If you follow the either or to their furthest extents, You've got the flaming Arminian loser salvation group on the one hand, and you've got your flaming Calvinist uh, God controls everything on the other hand. All right? And it's not an either or. It is a both and. All right. And if there's any confusion on that, tonight's question and answer night, and we can, uh, we can solve anything. You know, we can resolve 500 years of church debates over uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. We can solve in a single question and answer session on a Wednesday night. I sometimes frustrate people because they can't figure out if um, if I'm Calvinist or not. And, you know, they, they walk out on a Sunday just happy as a lark, convinced that I'm a Calvinist and say, man, I found the perfect church in the world. Come back the next Saturday or the next Sunday, totally upset, stomping out of here. I'm the worst Arminian that's ever walked this planet. And they're trying to figure it out. How does that work? Yeah, quit the either-or routine, and let's uh, see if we can find something else here. All right, eating, drinking. Jesus frequently employed the metaphor of drinking for the reality of believing. Point C. The full pneumatological, what's that mean? Holy Spirit. The full Holy Spirit's understanding of this message, that is the pneumatological doctrinal understanding of this message was only comprehended by the Apostle John afterwards. They did not understand he was talking about the Holy Spirit. Only years later did they figure it out. So point C, the full pneumatological doctrinal understanding of this message was only comprehended by the Apostle John afterwards during the dispensation of the church. In verse 39, for those of you that have red letters in your Bible, you'll notice they stopped in between verses 39 and 40. Uh, wait, wait, let me see. I'm in the wrong chapter. In between verses 38 and 39. That he ends the quotation in verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, period, end quote. Greek manuscripts didn't have period, end quote, but that's okay. Verse 39 is an editorial comment by the author, by John, who inserts this. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Remember, the Gospel of John is, is describing events that took place in 32 A.D., 33 A.D., but it wasn't written for 60 years afterward. It was written decades later. You know, if, if you were to write a story of something that happened years and years and years ago, you could do that. You could do that. My children reminded me of a flag football story from seventh grade last night at the dinner table. I hadn't thought about flag football probably since the seventh grade. But they mention it, and it jogged a memory, and it sparked a memory, and memories unflooded, and everything came pouring out. It's kind of interesting. I joke sometimes that most of my, I've suppressed most of my childhood memories, just too depressing, and who wants to think about that stuff anyway? But 
at dinner table, they mentioned flag football. All of a sudden, this flood of memories from seventh grade came out that, yeah, I used to play flag football. That was a lot of fun and different things. Well, you can write a story about something that happened years and years ago and write about this and this and this and this and then stop and inject something from decades later, knowing what you know now. See, knowing what you know now. You, kind of, you know, if you knew your husband from your childhood or something like that, you know, of course, at the time you didn't know he was going to be your husband in later years. You didn't know any of that. Okay. It's amazing where these stories come from. I make them all up. <laughs> but this is what Jesus is doing here. He says, uh, but this he spoke of the spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. But see, it's not the church age yet. At the time Jesus is ministering, it's still the dispensation of Israel. No one, almost nobody has the Holy Spirit in the dispensation of Israel. Jesus does, a few prophets do, but almost nobody has the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But by the time John writes this, the, the New Testament's starting to be written. They've been in the church age since Pentecost, and, and he's able to, uh, to relate messages that Christ had then with what they understand about it now. All right? I hope that, uh, that we, of course, I don't think anyone here has a confusion on that. You received the Holy Spirit the moment you were saved. You have a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit indwells you. When you confess your sins, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. We, we should have a pretty basic understanding of our pneumatology. We should have a good handle on it. I think folks that get it kind of messed up these days are Pentecostals, the, the charismatic crowds, the folks that think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is another event that happens later on for those that are worthy and deserving and, and work, work for it and ask for it and beg for it and try to get it. And they use speaking in tongues as the proof you've, you've got it. See, and a grandmother asked me, have you been baptized by the Holy Ghost? Well, what she meant was, do I speak in tongues? That's her standpoint, assembly of God and, and whatever else. My grandfather's eighth wife. I've met her twice, I think, in my whole life. Sweet lady. I love her. She writes letters, birthday cards. She prayed for me in Desert Storm. Just a dear, dear Christian lady. I don't doubt her salvation. I will spend all eternity with her. But she's screwed up with Pentecostalism. Absolutely convinced that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is something you work for and you receive later on and it's a second blessing, it's a second shower blessing, blah, blah, blah. And it's proof of it is that you start speaking in tongues. In any event. Um, so, what's the point? Why does Jesus say this? Why does Jesus communicate a message that they're not going to understand until the church age comes? Because it's important. It's important. When we teach Bible class today at Austin Bible Church or Sunday morning, whatever, we're teaching a doctrine, we're teaching content. Are you going to walk out of there that very same day with 100% application and recognition of every single thing that was spoken? No. But it doesn't stop us from teaching it because down the road, it can piece A can fit with piece B and then all of a sudden the light bulb comes on. The incandescent light bulb comes on. It's Earth Day yesterday. I'm a little ornery. The, um, and then all of a sudden, oh, that's what he was talking about. Yeah, that's what he was talking about. I get that all the time. In fact, the longer I pastor, the more brilliant Ralph Braun's becoming. There are times that I just, something happens and I go, you know, it hits me. Ralph was talking about that. He was talking about that 18 years ago. And I didn't, I couldn't figure out, was he from Mars? What's he talking about? Now all of a sudden, oh, okay. That's how that works. There's a benefit. There's a fruit to this. See? And so Jesus isn't backing down. He's just teaching and teaching. And some of it they're going to get today and some of it they're going to get down the road. And some of it they will never get because... A large percentage of these guys are unbelievers and they're not going to come to glory. All right, the last thing here then. The crowd became divided over Jesus' message. But the division was primarily because of their, of their baggage. The doctrinal background, what they came to the, to the message with. The baggage they walked in with. The crowd became divided over Jesus' message primarily because of their doctrinal backgrounds. You can put in there parentheses, theological baggage. 
All right, verse 44. I've got four minutes to explain this. <laughs> yeah, we'll give it a shot. Um, 40 through 44. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David, from the Bethlehem, the village where David was? You know, bingo, they're right. They're absolutely right. They are factually correct. That last group there is factually correct. In fact, they're all correct. Yes, he is the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Yes, he is the Christ. Yes, uh, he's from Galilee. And yes, he was born in Bethlehem. And yes, it's not an either or, it's a both and. It's all true because if God promised it, it's true. So they're all right, but they want to create this either or, if we're right, you have to be wrong kind of situation. The prophet is the Christ. They debated that back and forth. Um, Some of the things that happen here. But notice how much they know. Notice how many facts they have. And remember that they're not saved. Remember that they're not going to heaven. He's going to heaven and they can't get there. But they have a lot of facts. (laughs) There's a lot of people going to hell that have their facts right. These guys know that the Christ is going to arise from from Bethlehem. They know that the Christ is going to be a son of David. They have their facts straight, but they can't get to heaven. Jesus told them that. So here again, I think, is where evangelists who are a little leery of that point of decision. You know, you can, you can criticize Billy Graham all day long and I'll join with you in some Billy Graham criticism if you'd like. But one thing I think he stressed well was that moment of decision. What are you going to do now? How do you respond? Not just here, here are the facts. These people had facts. But all right, now knowing what you now know, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to believe this? Are you going to reject this? Are you going to trust in this for the redemption of your soul? Or are you going to keep looking for more answers somewhere else? Come to a decision. And this is why he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Jesus Christ is making this point of decision the issue. He's saying, today's the day. If you're thirsty, come. Right here, right now, come. If you're thirsty. And... Um, to me, that's a little bit more aggressive than some evangelism approaches are comfortable doing. I don't mind uh, if I've laid out the gospel to somebody, if I've told them about Jesus Christ, if I've gone through and whatever and explained salvation and everything else. I don't mind stopping and saying, uh, what do you think about all that? Is any of that making sense? Do you have any more questions? You want to do something about what you now know to be true? <laughs> and... You know, just trust that the Holy Spirit's convicting, the Father's drawing, and if, if they want to come, you invite them to come. Do you want to become a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you want to receive eternal life today, right here, right now? It's not going to cost them anything. So, doctrinal backgrounds, and I, and I find that interesting as well. Um, we have it today. A whole ton of people are going to come into churches today with baggage. Most of it's cosmos world viewpoint. They're going to show up thinking that they're they're okay. Because the world spent their whole life telling them they're okay. Just understand where the baggage is coming from and how it's going to impact their thinking. Alright, this wraps up point nine. The last thing left is point ten then, which is verses forty five through fifty two. And so uh the officers and Pharisees are absolutely uh stunned that the uh or the Pharisees are stunned that the officers haven't arrested him. You know, why is he not in jail yet? And the officer's like, well, uh, have you heard of what he has to say? <laughs> this guy is a powerful speaker. No one speaks like him. So we'll, uh, we'll focus on that. And then also the reappearance of Nicodemus. We have not seen Nicodemus since chapter 3. Here he pops up again now in chapter 7. Any to Nicodemus. So we'll have that next week. And then that will bring this, uh, this episode to a close. Lord willing and rapture pending, of course. Thank you, Father, for today, for the truth of your word, for your grace. We continue to look for your grace, Father. I thank you. Yesterday we got to walk 
through a couple of properties and uh, and got pretty excited about their location and the the trees and the other good points of the of the property that's there. We're going to sit down and meet with the, the man tomorrow about this and then uh, present it to the members. And I pray, Father, that uh, that your grace will be sufficient. I know it will be sufficient, but I pray that your grace will be obvious to uh, to myself, to the deacons, to the membership at large. Uh, Father, I thank you that these lots are larger than any lot we've ever looked at before. They are more expensive than any lot we've ever looked at before. Uh, but Father, that's that's not our business. That's your business. If uh, if that is your will for us to uh, to obtain, then you will make that provision. And I thank you, Father, for that. Father, I thank you for grace. I thank you that we have ministry where no one is pressured. I thank you that we have no uh, false motivations behind what we do, that we are a grace ministry where believers are motivated by grace to uh, support the ministry of the Word of God. And I thank you that on that basis, Jesus Christ receives the honor and the glory. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.